0: And thanks for joining me today. Is November 15, 2021, and we are talking about how to evaluate New York workers' compensation claims for exposure. And of course, I'm going to be coming to you with the attorney perspective on how we do this here. Uh, So, thanks for joining me today. I hope you're excited to be here as I am. Uh, We do this webinar in two sessions uh, one at 12 Eastern Time and one at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Our 12 o'clock session had great questions a lot of them uh, so i'm hoping that this uh, three o'clock session can top them in terms of uh, trying to stump greg with interesting exposure questions and actually really you could bring questions about anything in new york workers comp i'm happy to answer it so uh, feel free to type in your questions as we go today i want to talk about how attorneys review cases for exposure Really, uh, what kind of decision points we should be pushing the cases to for you and when you should be thinking about a change in the exposure and, of course, ways that we're going to reduce that exposure for you. I'm going to be talking about some of the jurisdictional peculiarities of New York workers' compensation cases. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we calculate a Scheduled Loss of Use and how we calculate a loss of wage earning capacity award because those are really going to be important to us in determining overall exposure or amicable settlement value. And of course, this is totally live. So I'm hoping that you've brought some interesting questions to ask us as I go through today's presentation. Now, I will go to the very end. Uh, It'll take me about 15 minutes or so to get to uh, the very few slides that I have and sort of explain uh, what we do or evaluating exposure. But really the most fun part is the end when people ask questions and we answer as many as we can. And my goal for today um, in particular is to uh, answer your question in such a way that's useful for everyone. So I'm going to say just your first name of the person who's asking the question. And I will then uh, read your question so everybody can get the benefit of that. And then I will answer it as best I can. And really sometimes the best learning takes place when we're sort of bouncing ideas off each other or people are hearing your question. And and so even if you have a question you think is silly or basic or straightforward, ask it, because there are other people attending who um, would probably benefit from hearing that question answered out loud. And sometimes it helps to sort of spur their thinking into a new direction, so go for it. All right. We're gonna really talk about two types of cases and how we evaluate exposure in these two types of cases. I'm gonna talk about denied cases and accepted cases. Now, denied cases are pretty easy. Uh, When we've decided that a case is denied, we're gonna be looking at what are the legal and facts defenses that we're raising, how strong are those defenses, what kind of trial outcome am I expecting, what am I gonna be expecting to present at trial, and how am I gonna expect to impact that settlement analysis that we're giving you in the beginning of the case, and really, all along the way, I want to be keeping my client up to date and up to speed with how the activity we're taking and pushing that case forward either to trial or countering our adversary's moves are really going to be moving the needle on exposure. And we're constantly focused on that. You know, if we're doing our jobs for you as your attorneys in a denied case, I'm keeping that den- denial sustained, right? I'm helping that make sure that gets upheld, and I'm helping reduce your exposure. So I should be telling you that as the case progresses how we're doing. On the other side of the house, let's say we're admitting a case. Well, there's still things that we're going to need to analyze and are going to have a huge impact on our overall exposure. Again, the most important thing we're going to look at really is what is the average weekly wage of the injured worker? Because that's going to impact the amount of exposure most greatly, really, uh, because the awards are all going to be based on what the person's average weekly wage is. We're also going to look at any apportionment issues we might have, because remember, in New York, if the person has a pre-existing disability to the same body part, we're going to get a credit for that by way of an apportionment argument under Section 44 of the New York Workers' Compensation Law. Uh, The next thing I'm going to look at is what type of indemnity uh, exposure are we looking at and what kind of medical exposure. You know, For the vast majority of injuries that we defend, they are subject to the medical treatment guidelines. The current medical treatment guidelines cover the neck, the back, the shoulder, the knee, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, and for that reason, a lot of uh, the typical workers' comp cases, the medical is quite knowable, and you know the sort of constellation of potential medical outcomes is pretty limited, really. Uh, so we're gonna be looking at that very carefully for you. And of course, we're gonna be thinking about your opportunity for risk transfer. This is often overlooked, Uh, but we found in our case population, which is at this point thousands of thousands of cases, uh, that about 10% of the cases um, risk transfer will help us reduce our overall exposure. And that's important. I know a lot of our clients have programs to address risk transfer, uh, but sometimes it's useful to double check on those programs and make sure they're doing the right thing. All during the life cycle of that admitted case, we're gonna be looking at and giving you advice about is settlement possible and what is the amicable settlement value and what's our best case, and likely case, and worst case in regards to our overall exposure. And that's our role. So I wanna talk more clearly about some of those milestones, when you should be having those conversations, and how we should be advising it. Now, in the initial case, uh, the initial denied case, again, uh, the first thing we're gonna look at is where's the case status? What, what What is pending in this matter? And generally speaking, they come to us at the time of denial. I think that's really a best practice. When you're considering whether or not to controvert a case in New York, really should be getting counsel involved. We're very happy. Uh, to give you advice about exactly which codes should be going into the pre-hearing conference statement, and most importantly, that freud 4 or shroy 4 which is disputing that case. So we're going to look at the case status. We're going to give you an analysis as to what we think of in terms of our fact and legal defenses. We're going to take a look at those fact defenses, particularly in the insured context. Am I going to be able to produce a document or a witness to help me challenge an aspect of the claimant's case? For my self-insureds, uh, that is a relatively straightforward proposition because it's their employee. They have the connection to the location or the or the the job location or the hub, wherever the person works. So we're going to be able to get to things like a material witness, their supervisor. We're going to get to their personnel documents. We're going to be able to get to the uh, initial case investigation materials. But sometimes in the insured context where it's a, particularly a smaller employer, this can be more difficult. And oftentimes there can even be a language barrier. So that's something we're going to look at. Next thing is, what about legal defenses? And that's so typically uh, why we're denying a case. We've got a great legal defense. For example, not my employee. This was an independent contractor, or didn't happen in the workplace. You know, did not arise out of in the course of their employment. There was this is something purely personal. There was a frolic. There was a detour. There was something completely unrelated to the employment uh, that led to this injury. So we're going to analyze whether or not a legal defense applies, and of course, we're going to do our best to uphold that legal defense because, you know, if we can get the case not be established or have the judge determine that this is not a compensable loss, yeah, your your exposure could drop to zero, except, of course, for your lovely attorney's fees. Um, next, we're going to be considering who is the judge assigned to the matter, what venue is this case in. Uh, we're going to be applying our knowledge of how that judge has ruled in the past and what kind of settlements... Uh, we've been able to obtain it. And we're really going to say, look, with these types of legal defenses or this type of fact defense before this judge, here's what we think our chances of prevailing and getting this uh, controversy uh, continued or keep it sustained rather than get the case established. We're going to give you our best um, analysis of that. We're also going to talk to you about who is opposing counsel. And this is particularly important in the denied case context. You know, is this opposing counsel someone who is vetted and knows workers comp and has been doing this for 10 years and is a really effective litigator. Or is this a tourist? Is this a dilettante? Is this their first time? They don't know the system, they don't know uh, the court. And for that reason, we think we've got a good opportunity uh, to prevail with our defenses. And the last thing I'm gonna look at um, is, in in terms of the, the, the hearings or the trial litigation is, how good are my witnesses? Now, we've been able to identify some to defend our facts. How good do they testify? How well have they been prepared? Uh, and how do they um, speak when they're on the stand? So all of those things are going to go into our sort of decision factors uh, as to coming up with our initial settlement evaluation for you. Uh, I'm also going to generally advise you about the opportunity for a post-trial action. You know, if we don't get the uh, outcome that we're looking for, there is always the potential to appeal in a New York workers' compensation case. And that potential can be quite powerful remember that when I'm, an appealing, uh, I'm on appeal or if I'm appealing a case, there is a stay on the benefits awarded, which means we're not paying the claimant during dependency of that appeal, which means an appeal may have a very powerful tactical impact on the case. And that tactical impact is going to be, hey, we're not paying them. That's going to want them to come to the table and maybe talk to us about settling their case. So that's something to be thoughtful about. All right. In an admitted case, some of these factors are going to be very similar, but You know, when the case has been admitted, my chief concern is going to be looking at, hey, have there been, what is the average weekly wage? How high is it? The higher the average weekly wage, the higher the potential award. And that's really what we're going to focus on in terms of setting your exposure or giving you our estimate of an amicable settlement value. We're going to look at the opportunity for apportionment to prior uh, pre-existing disability. We're also going to do our best guess as to what the medicals and indemnity uh, costs are likely to be. And we have to understand that we are in a New York workers' compensation system in which the claimant can choose their own physician. And oftentimes we'll choose a physician who is, let's just say, not the best doctor. They're picking someone who they know is going to keep them out of work for the longest possible amount of time. Now, that's okay uh, because New York also has medical treatment guidelines, and we're able to utilize those to diminish or stop really unnecessary treatment that is not curative in nature. So you do have medical treatment guidelines, which do help us sort of control or limit the amount of unnecessary medical care is taking place in your individual case. Of course, we're gonna be continuing to think about which judges are we appearing before, who's our opposing counsel. Now, in the admitted case, we're usually gonna focus very early on risk transfer, and that's because risk transfer, uh, again, is a huge opportunity for us to reduce our costs. Under Section 29, which is the risk transfer statute in New York, we're able to recover absolutely everything that we pay in a workers' compensation case from the third party or actually liable tortfeasor. That's very valuable. The only reduction that we get from the amount paid is the amount of cost of litigation. And that typically is attorney's fees plus some filing costs for the claimant to bring their own action. And again, as I'll talk about in a future slide, we can step into their shoes and actually subrogate in New York. Uh, Finally, there is always the opportunity to reduce exposure through the use of post-trial actions, and really I'm talking about appeals here, and just for the same reason they're valuable in a denied case, they're valuable in an admitted case, because even when we're admitting a case, there's often something that we need to litigate in order to reduce exposure. For example, uh, New York's a, 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 a jurisdiction where the claimant's able to treat uh, with any physician they want. And when they go to the doctor, they love to bring in new body parts. And all of a sudden, we see them, goes from a, a left you know, uh, index finger case to two years later, it's now the right ankle, the side of the head, it's the low back. They brought in all these new body parts. Each time they try to bring in a new body part, even in an admitted case, that's an opportunity to challenge the causal relationship and nature and extent of disability. And at that time, you're probably going to have some litigation. Typically, we'll be taking the Uh, testimony of the treating physician and trying to ask them how this new body part is consequentially related to the original accident. Oftentimes, they won't have a good answer to that. But every time you litigate, that also creates the opportunity or that risk of there being some kind of legal error. And guess what? There's a lot of legal error in the workers' compensation system. It is rough, fast justice here. And so we see courts and judges and opposing counsel make all sorts of legal and factual errors, which become the valid grounds for an appeal. And that appeal, again, might strategically not be valuable. In other words, it's not going to win you the whole case, but it will create that tactical pause or that uh, tactical disruption short-term between the claimant and their benefits and give you enough of a chance that you can then begin your settlement negotiations and try to resolve the matter at that time. So it does have a very powerful short-term tactical use, even if strategically it's not going to ultimately win you the case. So Uh, There are two main ways that uh, claimants are compensated in New York workers' compensation cases. Um, Let me just remind everyone first, uh, you can always do a lump sum dismissal in any type of case, admitted or denied. Those are pursuant to Section 32 and they're relatively straightforward. But the reason I'm not talking about Section 32 is because I'm really talking today about exposure and valuation. And the way we get to valuing a case to get to that Section 32 lump sum dismissal value is really to take a look at whether it's a scheduled loss of use case or a loss of wage earning capacity case, and basically build our section 32 value off of the award that the claimant would be able to win under the scheduled loss of use theory or the loss of wage earning capacity uh, award system. All right, And they are two different award systems. Scheduled loss of use awards apply to body parts that are enumerated on a schedule, and they include the hand, the fingers, your thumb, your wrist, elbow, shoulder, knee, Ankle feet extremities, okay? And the way that disability or impairment is primarily calculated is by use of range of motion calculations. And these were recently updated in 2018, and when they were updated, the doctors were instructed that they have to, have to use a goinometer, uh, which is kind of like a human protractor to kind of measure the actual range of motion limitations. couldn't just guesstimate it anymore. And they also had to take three tests or three uh, readings with the guinometer. So the idea here was to try to come up with a better uh, or more accurate way of measuring range of motion. They were also instructed in 2018 that they had to take measurements of the contralateral or unaffected limb. So if the person's coming in and claiming they can't move their elbow anymore, that's great. The doctor has to take three measurements of that elbow, but they also have to take three measurements of the other elbow and see what its range of motion is, and then compare the two and use the unaffected limb or the contralateral limb as the baseline, so this is, again, this is useful for us. Now, after that is completed, the doctor will put their range of motion findings into a C-4.3 form, which is really just a report about how permanently impaired uh, the claimant is. These are then brought over to another uh, schedule, which gives a list of every single body part and what the maximum number of weeks for total loss of use of that body part is. And essentially, uh, for uh, the calculation becomes two-thirds of the average weekly wage times the impairment percentage times a number of weeks coming from the scheduled loss of use chart, and that equals your scheduled loss of use exposure. And to be frank with you, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Uh, it works pretty well, and it you know generally most injuries fall within a very well-accepted range, and they're relatively easy to estimate. Now, to do this, we're going to need to get the claimant evaluated with our own IME. And the reason for that is because typically the treating physician will come up with Uh, range of motions and impairment figures that are way higher than our physician would be and our physician generally speaking is going to be more conservative probably a little less paternalistic and a little more accurate and objective when they're doing their measurements of the claimant that's why we're using them and of course they're picking their doctors because they know those doctors are going to give them the maximum award so i think when we're getting an evaluation done cover letters are table stakes absolutely should be done uh, I don't think it's, I think it's malpractice if an attorney says, oh, you're going to use so-and-so IME. Good luck. I hope that works out. Let me see the report when it comes back. You know, our practice here is absolutely to write a cover letter, a very careful, detailed, objective, verifiable, well-documented cover letter, really letting the doctor know, here's the treatment course this person's already had, and here's what we want you to look at, and here's the opinion that we're asking you to, to give us. Uh, we won't go as far as to actually Tell him, here, please write these words in your report. We want to be very clear about the question that the doctor is supposed to be answering. So I think table stakes is a cover letter. Many physicians will also administer a questionnaire, and it's okay for you to come up with the questionnaire that you give them to actually give to the claimant. Next, I think we should be giving that IME physician as as much and as many non-medical documents as you think are necessary. That could be job descriptions, that could be work descriptions, that could be the person's schedule. Again, when you have a claimant coming into your IME saying I can't do my job anymore, I can barely move my arms, and you're able to show that hey, this person is working full-time, full-duty, doing the same job, or maybe even asking for overtime, or working more and they're not working with a helper, they're able to do this uh, position, that's really powerful and useful information. In addition, non-medical documents would also include any surveillance video that you've obtained that you think might be useful in showing the person's ability to carry out their work or show active range of motion. There are a lot of limitations on how we can prepare our IME physician, and I hope everyone came to my prior webinar on how to prepare your IME physician. But one of them is once the doctor has received our cover letter and performed their physical examination of the claimant, we can't contact them to tell them how to testify or even to prepare them for their testimony. So we really need a physician uh, that knows what they're doing and knows how to testify in a workers' compensation case. All right, so that's a little bit about Schedule Loss of Use and Evaluations. Let's talk very quickly about the loss of wage earning exposure analysis and how that's conducted. So. In a loss of wagering capacity case, we're talking about the body parts that are not enumerated on a schedule. Again, I already told you, on the schedule is hand, finger, feet, toes, uh, eyes, hearing, elbows, knees, ankles, feet. Enumerated body parts, really think of them as the extremities. But What about an injury to the low back? What about an injury to the cervical spine? Or what about an injury like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or a depressive condition? Those are not amenable to a scheduled loss of use finding. And instead, those need to be resolved by way of a loss of wage earning capacity award. Now, where the person has returned to work, but they can't work in the same capacity, they have a diminished capacity, they have to be accommodated, they can't work as many hours, they can't do the same kind of job they used to be doing, a loss of wage earning capacity award is really easy because you just look at their pre-injury wages compared to their post-injury wages and the difference is their uh, loss of wage earning capacities. It's really quite straightforward. We will see a lot of that. Unfortunately, we see a lot of claimants who are like refusing to come back to any employment. They claim to be totally disabled all the way up and their permanency is established. And so instead, we've got to litigate all the basic issues that go around a loss of wage earning capacity award, which is first, we have to reach an agreement or have a judge rule that the claimant has actually reached maximum medical improvement. Next, we need to have both parties obtain um, medical reports that give an impairment rating to the claimant, and these are coming from a disability duration guideline which was released in 2018, and it's really the bible for how the IME physicians and the treating physicians are to estimate permanent residual disability medically, medical impairment. The other thing the judge is supposed to consider is the person's functional ability. Regardless of what the medical impairment is, what is their actual ability to carry on their activities of daily living? What is their mobility like? What kind of accommodations do they need to work? And the last thing is the judge is supposed to consider their vocational ability. And really, this comes down to their literacy, education, uh, and transferable skills. What else can they do uh, that would allow them to earn money uh, based on their prior work experience, vocation, education, um, literacy rate, which is you know, sometimes difficult, uh, all of that added together, Uh, comes up with a ruling from the judge of compensation on their loss of wage earning capacity. Now, we're also going to consider our venue and opposing counsel when we're giving you our estimate of exposure in a loss of wage earning capacity case. Uh, For example, I'm going to tell you uh, this judge in this venue, this type of loss, they're not going to be amenable to these types of defenses or arguments. We're also going to be thoughtful about the judge uh, and their experience with our IME physician. I've had um, experiences where I've Presented testimony to judges who said, "Greg, I don't care what this doctor says. I've seen them testify a hundred times. I don't trust that doctor. I don't like them. All right, we know not to utilize that physician in front of that uh, jurist." Uh, the other thing we're going to be thoughtful about is what's our experience with opposing counsel. You know, I've got opposing counsel um, who are warriors and they want to fight uh, for their clients and they will fight and litigate. But then I've got a lot of opposing counsel who essentially just want to collect. the the fattest fee they can collect for the least amount of work. They don't want to litigate. And so for those uh, claimants' attorneys, we're gonna be thoughtful about what our litigation approach is gonna be to really maneuver and push that case uh, towards a settlement. So we have to take all that into consideration. The next consideration we're gonna make is always risk transfer. I really bang the table on risk transfer because I think it's incredibly important. Most of our clients are very sophisticated and have a great, do a great job really of identifying cases where there is a third party potential, where there's really some other tort fees are out there. And particularly my employers in the transportation context uh, or the distribution context where they're really used to the third party claims and the opportunity there to recover money. But that's not everybody. Um, And so every time a new case comes into us, you should be expecting defense attorneys to really be saying, wait a second, um, is there another pocket here? Is there someone else that we should be uh, trying to collect this money from? Uh, And that's really important because it is dollar for dollar. I mean, this is the best and easiest way you can reduce your exposure in a workers' compensation case. So just as a reminder, New York allows for automatic reimbursement pursuant to Section 29, and it also allows for you to pursue direct subrogation, so those are great opportunities. All right, we're almost at the end, so if you haven't typed your question in yet, please do so, because it makes it so much more fun. All right, when should we be giving you this exposure analysis, when? Uh, This is the key. I think you should be relying on defensive counsel to keep you up to date with what's going on in the case. And also show you, in money terms, exactly what we're doing that's pushing the case towards a settlement or reducing your overall settlement value, right? If we're not doing those two things, what are we doing for you? I think that's something that gets lost in the mix, you know? Uh, and I, it's something that definitely, as I coach the attorneys around here, I, I constantly push them towards, how does this add value to the client? Really got to be two things. You have got to be showing me how you're disrupting the opponent's case. Show me what you're, how you're knocking them off their game, or you've gotta show me how this is reducing your amicable settlement value, how this is doing something that's gonna actually push that down. Otherwise, you're just prolonging things, and that's not good for anybody. So when should we be talking about exposure analysis? The answer is all the time, I think, but let's talk about it. First, in my office, every single case that gets referred here, we have an amazing intake department run by my partner, John Marzola. Every single case, every single document is filed with court and served on adversary within 24 hours. we've been consistent about that for years. But also, within seven days of referral, we're sending you out a legal action plan and budget with a complete exposure analysis in it. And that exposure analysis, I judge my attorneys how uh, efficacious they are based on how close the ultimate settlement or resolution of the case was to what they told you when that case was first brought into here, and we give you our first litigation analysis. To me, that's the gold standard, the mark of an attorney who knows what they're doing and is getting you the results that you're hoping for. Uh, next, during the case life cycle, things are gonna happen. Hopefully every single thing we're doing in the case is disrupting my opponent, we're creating momentum towards resolution, or we're reducing your overall settlement value. That's all we do here, that's our whole job. There's no, I don't have a third job, it's just that, that's what I do. Uh, and if we're not doing that and reporting it to you and telling you all during the lifestyle of the case, as we're moving the case around, uh, that we're making those improvements for you, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Right? It should be very clear. I don't like surprises. I know that my clients don't like surprises. I know you don't get to the end of the case saying to yourself, oh, I don't know how much this is worth. Or, whoa, I thought this was a small case. How come you're telling me it's worth a million dollars? I know there's nothing worse than that. All right. So. I hope that was a quick overview of what to expect, uh, how we put together the exposure analysis, the kind of factors we're thinking about. Let's go to some questions. And I'm gonna open up the questions pane over here. Um, no pressure three o'clock session, but 12 o'clock session had a lot of great questions for me. So I'm hoping that we have some good ones in here. Let's come over to the, uh, to the panel. All right, we got a couple here. Good, 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 good. Thank you very much. Let's go to the top, top one. First one, um, Okay, first one came in from Greg O. Great name, by the way, great name. And he says, Greg, when a claim has a loss of wage earning capacity of over 75% and you have limited knowledge of the claimant's household finances, how do you evaluate potential hardship benefits when you're evaluating for a settlement? Um, And then it says that same question again, so maybe you copied and pasted it twice. Oh, you copied and pasted it three times. Okay, good, I got it the first time, we're good. So great question, Greg. So Greg brings up something that's very important in this jurisdiction, which is when someone can get a 75% LWEC, that's pretty disabled. They can now automatically, since the Reform Act of 2017, they can automatically, when that when that award is paid out, come back to the workers' cop court and go, Yep, I was 75% disabled, but you know what? Due to a hardship, economic hardship, I'm actually totally disabled. So you should change the award to total disability and pay me forever. And in order for them to do that, all they have to do is come into court and show that they have a basic economic hardship, which is very ill-defined, but it means basically they can't pay their bills. It doesn't matter that the bills are for a Cadillac and for an expensive cable TV subscription. It doesn't matter. All they got to show is that they can't meet their bills. And for that reason, Greg, I never recommend to clients ever settling or resolving cases even close to 75% LWAC because you know if you settle a case close to there or at that value, they are gonna come back and they are absolutely gonna demand that they have an economic hardship because it's very easy to show an economic hardship. You just collect a whole bunch of bills, you staple them to the back of the form, and you mail it in, right? So the first step is no. Uh, When you're going to resolve a case or settle a case and your opposing counsel comes to you and goes, how about we settle this case at 75%? That's not total, you could get total. I look at them and go, well, you might as well just total. Because you're going to come back and do that anyway. So now we got to litigate it, and you've really got to fight uh, on those kinds of cases. So the, the the first answer is don't even let it get close. The second answer is look, there's really no way of knowing. Um, you know, there's nothing, there's no discovery we can serve. For example, interrogatories. We can't depose the claimant about their current life status or bills or how much indebtedness they've gotten themselves into. And so for that reason, it's really unknowable by the time you resolve a case for 75% uh, loss of wage earning capacity, uh, how much uh, they could come back for in the future. So my advice is stay way far away from Those cases are worth trying, they're worth litigating, because even if you only knock it down 5%, you've eliminated that potential for them to come back and to demand that they get that uh, economic hardship, uh, additional award. Okay, Andrea asked the question, Greg, if you settle a claim with an indemnity-only section 32, leaving medical open, can a claimant then come back and allege consequential sites after the settlement has been finalized? Andrea, I would fight that like a crazy lunatic. I would be screaming and yelling and bang my hand on the table and go, Judge, how can there be anything consequential of something that we've both administratively dismissed, right? Because remember, uh, workers' compensation section 32 is not a payment of compensation. You're not establishing, accepting liability for that body part. You're simply saying, not only do they not have a workers' compensation claim, this isn't even a payment of compensation. Here's some money, go away, never come back. How are they are going to come forward into the future and say, well, now I've that thing that got dismissed. Now I've got new injuries that resulted from it. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. And I think you're going to raise notice statute and your statute of limitations to get rid of that. Now, an interesting sidebar would be, Uh, What if the person was getting that authorized medical care uh, that was not closed out under the Section 32 and got injured while receiving it? Could they bring a new workers' comp claim? You know, interesting, maybe. Um, And uh, I'll tell you another thing, though. This is just maybe me and, and being doing this for 21 years. In almost every case, almost every case that I've ever closed by way of Section 32, where the indemnity was closed but medical remained open, we never see the claimant come back and seek more medical care, right? They generally are gone. It's a sayonara, goodbye, because they are, they recognize that getting more medical care is not gonna necessarily result in any more payments to them. So for that reason, I think it's unlikely that you know, most of the time we don't see them um, seeking more care after that moment. All right, so two questions, it's pretty good. Uh, you guys didn't catch up with the 12 o'clock section. It looks like Greg uh, was trying to He kept copying and pasting the same question in a couple times, so maybe he was trying to beef up your numbers and beat them. Hey, guys, there's always next month. All right, um, thanks for coming, everybody. I had a great time doing this presentation. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. And if I don't see you soon, have a great uh, holiday. Have a great Thanksgiving. Have a great week. Bye, everybody.